Hello, everyone. I'm Paul Menzel. And I'm Jim Conlon. And this is New Tricks for Old Dogs. Our podcast features the many ways us older folks howl at the moon, odd news items you don't normally hear about, and conversations with other old dogs who are growing bolder, not older. So if you've got 25 minutes or so, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a chair, and join us. In this episode, the old dogs talk about, well, ashes, and what to do with them when that's all that's left of you. We gripe about all the words we waste when we're trying to say something. We introduce a new feature, Aging is Awesome. We suggest that if you want to stay sharp, try an online class. We discuss the ways people are dealing with the prospect of cremation. We try on the idea of social distancing while playing rugby. And we conclude with a bit of reflection on what happens when we stop working. The Old Dogs interview is with Neil Thompson, a man who had success as an actor in Hollywood, became a writer on hit TV shows, and finally became, well, a history professor. Stay with us. So, Paul, what's on your mind today? Well, here's what I'm thinking about, Jim. We had a pod nugget in uh, today's episode about cremation Mm -hmm. and what to do with the remains or the cremains, as they say. Yeah. And what that brings to mind is, you know, we're we're generally uncomfortable planning our death. Don't you agree? Well, yeah. In fact, I was uncomfortable including that pod nugget uh, here because of that. Not being sure myself about what's ahead and how I'm going to handle it. Yeah. Well, let me assure you, we will both die at some point. Well, that's, that's easy for you to say. That's a given. But you know what's yeah. uncomfortable is is actually thinking about it and and maybe putting your wishes down on paper. Right, right. Uh, because what are our wishes after all? Do they remain the same do, as we get closer uh, to that eventuality? Do do our minds change? Well, I haven't done any planning. I haven't planned what uh, what kind of a funeral service I would like. Mm-hmm. I know I want to wake where everybody gets a little drunk. Uh, <laughs> of course. But I don't want to pick up the tab. <laughs> <laughs> well, what what difference would it make then? That's true. I mean, people don't have funerals much anymore. They have no. life celebrations, you know? Well, you know, uh, uh, my wife and I have both arranged to be cremated. We mm-hmm. are members of the Neptune Society. Oh. So we already have a, a pretty little vessel that our ashes are going in. But other than that, we haven't really thought about where we want them scattered. Um, I really don't want somebody to keep them on their shelf. I think that's a little spooky. Well, if that's the case, why why do you need a pretty little vessel? It, it came with the package. Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> you didn't have the option. I mean, it might be something worth admiring. I, I would I would be fine with a cigar box. <laughs> uh, but then, of course, you have to, you don't have to, but you should advance some idea about where you want them scattered. Yeah. Well, you know what we should keep in mind is that we're not going to be the ones scattering. So maybe we should ask those who are likely to be the scatterers. Uh-huh. Maybe they don't want to do any scattering. Maybe they have a different way that they want to remember us. I, I haven't thought about that, and I think I should. Well, you know, in the piece today, uh, there was a recommendation that there be some kind of formal bookends to a scattering, a piece before the scattering and a piece after the scattering. Now, that's something you could plan. I could probably write a great one. I I could probably write a funny one. (laughs) (laughs) 
If you are looking for something to do to fill extra pandemic leisure hours, you could practice eliminating crutch words from your speech. This pod nugget is from the website Word Genius. Crutch words are words or phrases that we use to give ourselves a second to think while we are speaking. Like seriously, they're not needed. For example, like seriously is not needed in the previous sentence. Let's take a look at some major crutch words. Like should describe similarities between two or more things. Instead, it's often used in place of, for example, like adding like before any sentence like this one. Just diminishes the importance of the request or statement that follows. It implies a minimum that what you're saying isn't a big deal. Just choose your words more carefully. Seriously used to imply real gravity, but is more often used as a sarcastic exaggeration. If you're using the word without being serious, you might want another word choice. Seriously, by a thesaurus. In a similar vein, actually should imply reality. Literally should mean exactly what the person said. Basically should denote simplicity and honestly should emphasize truthfulness. They are usually not needed and won't be missed. And finally, the word well is a hedge word that softens the impact of whatever comes after. Well said is better not spoken, which is just as well. Seriously, Paul? Basically. (laughs) From the pages of Seniorly.com, why aging is awesome. Did you know that age doesn't determine success? The founder of KFC, Harland Sanders, started his fast food chain at the age of 65. Wealth and fame soon followed. And here's another one. Paul Menzel and Jim Conlon started the New Tricks for Old Dogs podcast Hmm. at the ages of 72 and 73, respectively. However, we are still waiting for the wealth and fame part to catch up with us. Yeah, I don't see it on the horizon. How about Hmm. you? Did you know that there are thousands of classes available online? And the best part is they're free. This pod nugget is from the New York Times for September 9th, 2020. Maybe you've always been curious about a subject but didn't know how to learn more. There are several internet sites that can connect you with a class that covers the subject. You just have to do a little exploring on your computer. Many colleges and universities offer classes for free to the public. To see what's available, try Class Central, a search engine for online classes. Class Central provides links to over 15,000 classes. Some classes require several weeks to complete, so choose something that fits your schedule. If you want a smaller number of options, try the Open Culture site. It lists about 1,500 free classes from universities including Stanford, Yale, MIT, Harvard, and Oxford. If you're looking for more informal options, consider the lectures and webinars offered by museums and libraries. If you're not ready for a college-level course, you can access the nonprofit Khan Academy, which offers high school courses in a range of subjects. And, of course, we should mention the instructional videos on YouTube. Right. They provide hands-on instruction for just about anything that needs hands. Free classes are a great way to stay sharp and involved. So turn off the TV Get on your computer and return to college. You don't have to worry about grades this time. In case you were wondering what to do when scattering a loved one's ashes, 
One tip is to keep your back to the wind. This pod nugget is from the New York Times Magazine for October 22, 2020. Over half the folks who died during the last year were cremated. And so the New York Times thought it would be thoughtful to give readers some information about how to handle cremated remains or cremains. They consulted a professional death educator named Gail Rubin. That's really her title, Jim. She said that the deceased often don't specify where they want their ashes scattered. Her suggestion is to choose a place the person loved, but research local and federal regulations first. The National Park Service issues permits for scattering ashes, provided it is out of the public view, 100 yards from any waterway, and no marker is left behind. Ms. Rubin further suggests that you start and end the scattering with some kind of ritual, such as a prayer or a poem. And then scatter the ashes with intentionality after checking to make sure which way the wind blows. It can be a messy process. It's okay if you get your hands dirty or even if the wind changes and you get a little dusted. The cremains are pulverized bone that's sterile and safe to touch, even if the person died of a communicable disease. So, Paul... Where would you like your ashes scattered? Well, within sight of a brewery, because I know I'll be parched, Jim. Why am I not surprised? You know, sometimes it's complicated trying to socially distance in a crowd, such as during a rugby match. This item is from the Sky News for September 18th, 2020. Rugby is a contact sport. It kind of resembles a brawl. It's rugged and grueling. Matches are definitely a little risky during a pandemic. Recently, a team decided that because of concerns about their health, rugby would be a non-contact sport. The occasion was a match between two German teams, Ripdorf and Holdenstedt. Holdenstedt had recently had a match with a team that had been exposed to COVID-19. The Ripdorf players didn't think it was safe to have a match with a team that had a match with a team with a player who had tested positive to COVID-19. But if they didn't field a team, they would be fined. So Ripdorf fielded only seven players, the minimum for a team. When the game kicked off, one of the Ripdorf players passed the ball to their opponent, and then they walked (laughs) to the sidelines. Well, the result was that Holdenstedt beat Ripdorf 40 goals to zero. Lacking opposition, perhaps the score should have been greater. One can only assume they were tired from all the unopposed running and kicking. The faces of the fans in the stands range from bewilderment to disgust. Well, such is life during the pandemic, Paul. Many retirees don't have a plan for what they will do after retiring. The results can be rocky. This item is from the New York Times for September 12, 2020. Mark Friedman heads up a nonprofit called Encore.org, which aims to utilize the skills of older workers. He believes the shift to retirement is viewed narrowly as a vocational one, a move from working to non-working. Yet something much deeper and more fundamental is underway. It can be an uncertain, scary time. Part of the fear stems from a loss of identity when work ends. The daily structure that work provided is missing. There's an emotional piece that catches people unaware. The self-esteem and camaraderie connected to working is now gone. Friedman continues, Add in the underlying awareness that there are fewer days ahead than behind. Time is more precious. Questions of purpose and legacy are more prominent. 
Well, this can sound depressing, but for many people, it is a powerful source of motivation for making the most of this period. Three years ago, Lester Strong retired from a large nonprofit in Washington at the age of 67 and moved to Kingston, New York. He didn't expect the period of wandering around that followed his retirement. He was trying to sort out what he wanted to do next. His path forward came after an incident involving the use of force by police against a black man in Kingston. He decided to get involved. In January, he started a pilot program called the Peaceful Guardians Project. The initiative forms teams of young people and police officers that work on activities that foster understanding and trust. Lester Strong had found a meaningful purpose post-retirement. In his words, I have something to say, something to offer, and this is something that I can do that will bring me the enthusiasm. Add a way to howl at the moon. Neil Thompson started off as an actor in Minneapolis, made his way to L.A., where he became successful first as an actor, then as a writer. But one day he got tired of writing, and so he turned to teaching. And now he's a history professor, and he's as happy as he's ever been. Well, Neil, let's start at the beginning. How much did you weigh at birth? (laughs) Actually, what I'm really interested in is you made a decision to move out to Los Angeles, and you tried to make a go as an actor. Tell us about that. Uh, yeah, well, I, you know, I did make it go as an actor. I, you know, I, I never had to take another job, which was kind of miraculous because most actors are waiting tables or something. But I did enough work with, uh, you know, in commercials and bit parts here and there. I think I was on about seven or eight TV shows, a couple of movies, many things not memorable. But uh, we did fine. And, you know, when we came out, we continued to perform out here and we formed a company called the comedy corporation but you know all of us got work in one phase of the business or another and uh, the writing thing just happened kind of by chance the first writing show i was hired on was um the red fox variety show which of course the white boy from iowa was perfectly suited to do (laughs) but i really wasn't committed to writing yet i still thought i was more an actor than a writer and uh, so I continued acting. I got a couple of pilots, you know, uh, it's always very exciting, but then the show doesn't sell. And so then you're back looking for your next job. And it wasn't until 81 that I was fortunate enough to get hired as a writer on Police Squad. You know, it was very, uh, it was irregular the way in which it happened in the sense that we've gotten to know the Zuckers of Airplane and Naked Gun uh, fame. Uh, because they ran a theater in town, and uh, through mutual friends, we had gotten together. We'd seen their show, they'd seen our show. And when the Zucker brothers sold Police Squad as, as the, you know, it was sort of the template of what became the Naked Gun movies, they sold that as a TV series. Uh, they wanted to find people that weren't what they called traditional sitcom writers. And so, and that started our writing relationship. We only did six episodes, but the weird thing about it was it was such a cult hit that we had agents knocking on our doors at Paramount, which as an actor was something that's unheard of. You know, actors are chasing agents all over town, knocking on doors, getting a lot of rejections. And here we had agents (laughs) knocking on our door saying, hey, are you guys represented? From that point on, we just started writing. And uh, from your bio, I see you worked on 14 uh, different comedy series. Right? You just went from one show to the other? I did. Um, 
I mean, I, I really had a fortunate career in that um, I I just kept getting jobs. You know, let's face it. I mean, some of them weren't as good as others. <laughs> you you kind of take jobs that are available to you, and um, but it, yeah, they, they they were all great experiences, and and um, a lot of work, a lot of late hours, comedy writing in television tends to require that you give a bit of your private life because you're going to be working a hell of a lot in the uh, you know late nights and that sort of thing. Um, but it's also it's also incredibly fun. Uh, it's, it's, it's really hard work, but it's fun. Well, you've talked about your time in the show business, and you had a lot of fun, but yet you left show business. Mm-hmm. What happened to change your direction? Uh, well, you know, the truth is you reach a point where I did it for 25 years straight. In about year 23, you know, you, you had a little fatigue. And I was kind of looking around for how much longer do I want to do this? What are my options and that sort of thing? And I finally decided that I was just going to put it all aside and I was going to go back to school. I I always enjoyed history. History was my undergraduate major when I was at Iowa State so many years ago. And and so I wanted to, I just decided I wanted to pursue a, a master's degree in history. So I went to my executive producer, who's a good friend, and I said, you know what? I don't think I'm going to come back next year. I think I'm going to hang it up. And he, he said, what are you going to do? I, well, I explained what I wanted to do. And he said, oh, I'm so jealous. I don't think he really was, but he was being nice. But he said, why don't you consult then? Why don't you just come in a couple of days a week? And, and so that's what I did. I dovetailed the two, the two different paths there. And so I went off and went to Cal State Northridge. I studied American history uh, for uh, parts of three years because I, I didn't want to carry a huge load of classes. And so uh, for those last couple of years on Malcolm in the Middle, I was a consultant, still writing scripts, not as many. But then I was also going to school. And then, I mean, I really didn't plan this, but they asked me if I wanted to teach. Um they had kind of an emergency situation where they had a professor fall out. And so I was kind of thrust into teaching. And I'll tell you, the odd thing is that as much as I enjoyed uh, writing uh, and I had a, a great deal of fun, um, many, many, many laughs, um, terrific, and met some really great, talented people who are still you know, friends today. The first time I walked into a, a classroom, as nervous as I was about, oh, uh, <laughs> there it goes. I felt really at home. Now, it may be genetic because my father was a professor. My mother was an American lit teacher. So I guess I have it in my genes. But um, I just loved it. I love teaching. And, and so that has continued. So that's sort of become my, my third career, went from acting to writing to teaching. Okay, Neil, so let's combine your love of film and TV with your love of history and teaching about history. Talking about the influence that movies have had on American culture, uh, in your opinion, what do you think is the most important way in which movies have affected American culture? I think movies are more often a reflection, although there are uh, films that oddly... Uh, connect with the zeitgeist, I guess you'd say. I think a great example is Bonnie and Clyde. Why does a a film about the 1930s 
two gangsters in the 1930s. Why is that relevant to the world of the of 1967 when it was made? Well, it, it caught the zeitgeist. It, it caught the sense of rebellion uh, that was uh, there in uh, the turmoil of the 60s. The juxtaposition of the crazy kind of fun accompanied by the, the, the banjo music that they used uh, in that film uh, with the violence that was going on I think also reflected the way in which we as a society were, were sort of absorbing the violence of the civil rights protests, uh, the pushback from that, and of course the anti-war. Um, and so there was a, a sort of nominal moment of where film on the surface seems totally disconnected with the present day, but actually reflected a great deal of uh, the sense of sort of nihilism that was uh, entering into the culture at that time. Spoke it like probably. a college professor. <laughs> I think you could make the same argument for, say, Butch Cassidy, yeah. uh, which came out about the same time. And then in contemporary terms, uh, reflecting what was happening and also affecting it, I think in a great way, was The Graduate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, The Graduate is obviously a rejection of mainstream ideas, you know, I mean, that great, wonderful moment when he's, Ben has come back from school, they're throwing the party for him, his parents throwing the party for him, the, the uh, family friend pulls him aside and says, <laughs> one word, plastics. plastics. <laughs> Neil, I want to go back to the writer's room for a second. As, sure. as you were in the business for, let's say, 20 years, did you sometimes feel like you were the, the parent at a party where every, everybody wanted to drink and uh, you, you were the adult in the room? Well, I will say this, that one of the reasons why I decided maybe it was time to move on was I was realizing that I was riding with people that I, I was old enough to be their father. And I do think that comedy is something that, uh, that changes, tastes change, uh, styles change, and that um, I, I don't know that, um, <laughs> I felt, I felt I, it was, might, might be time to pass the baton. Um, having said that, I don't think I was the best behaved in the room. I don't think I was an exemplary. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see. The favorite adult that let them drink. Okay. I, I get it. I, I, I was kind of like the crazy uncle, maybe. <laughs> So, Neil, looking ahead to the future, uh, you and I are roughly about the same age. What are your plans down the line? Plans? I don't know. You know, I I kind of take it a year at a time in terms of the in terms of the, the teaching thing. Um, I just as long as it's interesting and fun, and they keep offering me a job, then I'll I'll keep doing it. I guess. So, yeah, I I don't know. I my my dad always told you know my dad lived to be. 102. Wow. And he said he always regretted not stopping. You know, he thought he stopped work too soon. Well, he worked till he was 70. Uh, and now I passed that. So um, I guess, uh, you know, you just want to stay busy as long as your <laughs> as long as your mind is, uh, is in one piece. <laughs> <laughs> What's interesting, Neil, and I thank you for this, is you've opened a world to us that we've never explored before in an interview. And that's always a, uh, a lot of fun. 
And I think we may have inspired some people in their 70s to uh, try comedy writing. <laughs> right. <Jump> in. <laughs> so I tell you, it, it sounds to me like you, you have always been looking for something to invest yourself in, something that uh, gives you juice in the morning. Uh, do you have any advice for uh, our audience who are people in their 70s for the most part? Well, I just say stay active. And, you know, at this point in life, we should be doing what we want to do, you know. And so no matter what it is, you know, just <laughs> no guilt about just doing what you want to do. Whatever makes you, makes you happy. I mean, just go for it. Like what you've been hearing? How about sharing the joy with your friends? We can always use more listeners. All our episodes are available on our website, www.olddogspodcast.com. And there are a lot more episodes on the way, so stay tuned and keep howling at the moon.